Okay. Are you ready for some apocalyptic? Are you ready for some apocalyptic? We're having it. Daniel 8, the word of the Lord. <clears throat> In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me. Daniel. After that which appeared to me at the first, and I saw in the vision, and when I saw, I was in Susa, the citadel, which is the, in the province of Elam, and I saw in the vision, and I was at the Ulai Canal. I raised my eyes and saw, and behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal, it had two horns, and both horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. No beast could stand before him, and there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. As I was considering Behold, a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground, and the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. He came to the ram with the two horns, which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal, and he ran at him in his powerful wrath. I saw him come close to the ram, and he was enraged against him and struck the ram and broke his two horns. And the ram had no power to stand before him. And he cast him down to the ground and trampled on him. And there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. Then the goat became exceedingly great. But when he was strong, the great horn was broken. And instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. Out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the, toward the glorious land. It grew great, even to the host of heaven. And some of the host and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. It became great, even as great as the prince of the host. And the, and the regular burnt offering was taken away from him, and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. And a host will be given over to it together with the regular burnt offering because of transgression. And it will throw truth to the ground. And it will act and prosper that I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to the one who spoke, for how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate, and the giving over to, of the sanctuary and host to be trampled underfoot? And he said to me, for 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary will be restored to its rightful state. May God add his blessing to the reading of the word and the proclaiming. Uh, give us understanding, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.
Amen. You'll need those Bibles. I hope you have them out. Thank you, Michael, my good friend. Oh, what a sweet morning of worship. Just sincere worship pointed at the Lord is such a beautiful thing. I'm happy to be in the choir with you this morning. It's good stuff. Well, you know, as we turn to this section in Daniel, it does feel different than Daniel has felt up until this point, hasn't it? We, and Daniel has been such a, such a beautiful, such a wonderful book, and it still is, but it does feel different. Let's remember a little bit about where we've been. You know, Daniel has not only been good to study, but it's been rich in considering what life is like in exile. Let's not forget that that's what this book, that's the context of this whole book. Life between two worlds. Daniel has one foot in, certainly in the Babylonian courts, but he's got another foot in the, his homeland, and he's a Jewish guy. There's so much wisdom there. Remember, Daniel, while he's living in Babylon, he isn't Babylonian. He's a faithful Jewish man. And while it's not an exact one-for-one one fit for our situation, those of us that love the Lord have, been, have given our lives to Him, have, have been adopted into the family of God. We too live with one foot in one world and another foot in another world. We are citizens of the kingdom of God, and yet we're trying to figure out life in the kingdom of man. Do we compromise and act according to the principles of our culture? Certainly not. Daniel has given us example after example. There comes a time when we say, no, we're not going to eat from the king's table, as Daniel did way back in chapter 1. And we're encouraged with God's provision for Daniel. God will guard us and provide us in ways that we won't even be able to see coming as we refuse to compromise with the, the principles and, and powers of the world. So we don't compromise. Do we head for the hills? Do we avoid the culture altogether? No, rather, we haven't seen Daniel head for a cave or, or leave out of town. No, we've seen Daniel as well as his buddies Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego even working in high-ranking government jobs. Far from avoiding civic involvement, they have been really demonstrating how to be salt and light in a dark culture. And that's good advice for us as you and I think about how we might engage with our world, with our neighbors. We work hard. We do good jobs. We engage in civic discourse in all kinds of ways. We pray like crazy, but we don't give in to hate, to anger, to pride. What an encouragement. Because God might call some of us to lead and serve in some very, uh, we would say, dark places. And you know, we think about Daniel's involvement in the civic government. Like he works for Nebuchadnezzar for most of the story in a high level. And it very well might be that God might call some of you to work in a high level of our government too. And, and you might look at Daniel and go, wow, this is such a great example of how I might um, be salt and light and how I might even be able to tell the truth in places that sometimes get me thrown in a lion's den and, you know, whatever. But maybe it's not the civil government, but maybe it's a company that you look and go, man, I don't agree with everything that's going on here. But God might call you to be salt and light in some places 
that are difficult. Daniel's great encouragement for that. You know, I'm all for voting with our dollars and, you know, not supporting unethical companies and whatever, but maybe God might call Christian people like me and you to serve inside of some places like that too. I was thinking, I had a friend who, I, th- I can't remember exactly how this worked, I think it was his, do- her, his, his daughter's husband, worked on, on a, a very popular TV show that you and I would probably go, well, that doesn't honor God. I don't want to say the name of it, but it rhymes with South Park. And, and, um, and my, my friend who was church going dude, you know, who was like, man, you know, it seems like that's pretty even like take jabs at the church a lot and all that. And how do you do that? And the person who worked there said, oh, you wouldn't believe the stuff that I'm able to help in the, in the process of getting stuff on television. So that person had seen a real call to be in a place where they were very much like Daniel, felt kind of alone felt like they were working in a countercultural way. And Daniel's been this good encouragement for us to unyieldingly worship Christ and Christ alone in places where he is not honored. In fact, I'm even mindful that I might know a lot less about that than you. You're not going to believe this. People are just fine with me being a Christian in my job. <laughs> I always feel so lucky if You walk into my office and I'm deep in prayer with a Bible open, you'll probably go, oh, I'm sorry. (laughs) I'll come back. Or I bet you don't have that experience. That's a real gift that I have. But in some ways, we're all like that. We're living among a people that seems to worship so much that's not Christ. We live among a people that worship themselves and it's tempting for us to worship ourselves. We live among a people that worship money and financial security. And it's tempting for us to, in an unyielding way, not do that too. We live in a place where, where people are worshiping a, a civil organization or another or a political party or another. And it's tempting for us to say, man, in an unyielding way, I'm going to worship Christ and Christ alone. And that's not going to make me useless in all those areas. Rather, it's going to send me in to be light in dark places. The book of Daniel has kind of reminded us as we go into the world, as you um, spend your, your days in places where you have to be uncompromising, unyieldingly in love with God, worshiping Him and Him alone among people that have different ideas about who and what to worship. The, the book of Daniel has left us um, reminding us not to engage with anger, but with service and love, to not become the anger and hate that we're trying to change by becoming hateful and angry. Rather, we've seen Daniel loving the culture he's in, engaged, even becoming like Nebuchadnezzar's right-hand man. But it's also reminded us that sometimes you'll end up in a lion's den for it. Sometimes there will be times of sacrifice and it will you'll be able to tell that what you worship is different than your neighbors but it also has told us that sometimes we will hear praise and glory of the living god coming out of the mouths of nebuchadnezzar that this is the call that as we go into the world with the message of the gospel as salt and light that of course there will be bumps along the way. Of course there will be 
times when we stand out and we don't look like everybody else. And there might even be punishment for that. We might be the one that, that feels like we're on the outside at the office or whatever it might be. But we're never going to hear Nebuchadnezzar faithfully say that God is the living God without people being salt and light in his presence. So we're not separatists, far from that. We are implements of change. And our weapons are the same as Daniel's prayer and service and unwavering obedience in the middle of our culture. And so that's kind of been the story, this like faithful life in exile. It's difficult, but man, it's valuable and it's worth it. And then as we've turned to the second half of Daniel that we started last week and are just knee deep in it this week. The, the whole book is, is an apocalypse, but this feels very apocryphal as we continue reading. And we're just a few more weeks in Daniel. We'll probably, I don't know if I'll be able to, but we might do chapter nine next week. And then 10, 11, and 12 are kind of all one story. So that might be just one week or maybe two. But as we've been in this part there, there's been this extra layer. There will be this extra layer that you wouldn't necessarily see as fully in the first half. We're kind of going back and saying, oh, as Daniel was being faithful, as Daniel was being uncompromising, as Daniel was getting thrown in lion's den and speaking truth to power, and as Daniel was seemingly by himself, we find out that he was never alone. But that's what an apocalypse is, is an unveiling, a revealing. And what we are learning that we've seen in glimpses in the first half of the book, but it is in, is in perfect focus in the second half of the book, is that while there is stuff going on here uh, that we can see, there's human stuff going on. The stuff is happening in the Babylonian court, but there is also stuff happening in the spiritual realm, that Daniel is not alone. Rather, God has been with Daniel. He has felt out of control. It's felt like Nebuchadnezzar was in total control. Belshazzar is in total control. Darius is in total control. But in the second half, we realize, no, actually, God has been in control the whole time. So as we tell this story, this, I think, is what we're supposed to walk away today and for the next few weeks knowing that while the nations rage and the oceans roar, God continues to be the sovereign. God continues to be the one who is able to rescue, to save. And there has to be confidence built in us. God is still on his throne. God is so awesome. I think that's another thing as we read. That certainly was the point of last, uh, last week's chapter, chapter 7, that as we see all of this other stuff going on, man, as we behold Him, all of a sudden, the comings and goings and even terrible things that are happening in our culture and around the world pale in comparison to His greatness. That if we would behold His greatness, that's the road to peace. So God is still on his throne. God is worthy and he will act. We're also starting to see how, I don't have a better way to say this, but how Israel-centered this book is. Even though it has taken place in Babylon, Daniel's heart, Daniel's focus, Daniel's worry is for the covenant land. 
for the promised land. Daniel remembers the covenant promises of God. In verse 9 that Michael just read, uh, he called uh, Israel the glorious land. Daniel has not given up. While he is being a faithful Israelite in Babylon, he has not given up the covenant hope, the covenant promises of God. And this again might be something that we would think about as we endure the comings and goings of you know, the news cycle and whatever the next natural disaster that happens and, and whatever natural disasters are happening in our lives too. We would do well to remember that God is a covenant promise keeper. So as we dive into this passage, um, context is going to be very important. Time and place. Where are we in history? And, and where are we on the map? And so, and in fact, I want to take a lot of time to, to tell the contextual story of our passage. And then once we do that, this very complicated and confusing passage no longer seems very complicated and confusing, but it seems pretty easy to understand. So we're told that this is in the third year of Belshazzar's reign. So he is in Babylon. That means it's a couple of years after chapter 7. So if you just flip back in your Bible or in your fake Bible, you know you're on your phone. Um, stop checking your email for a second. Get back to the Bible app. Um, and, uh, and, and if you get through uh, 7, you go, oh yeah, right, all those four beasts and the whole thing and the Son of Man and the Ancient of Days. And that, that was all that. So um, so now we're about two years after that. So Daniel has had that vision and then nothing for a couple of years. That's another thing. When we read through this, we think, oh my gosh, these visions are coming fast and furious at Daniel. No, that's not true. But God occasionally in his life is opening up the curtain and showing Daniel that he's not alone, that other things are happening, that Babylon is real, but it's not real like the kingdom of God. So this is three years, um, year three of Belshazzar's reign in Babylon. Let's give you a map because I know that your favorite part of any talk is a map and dates. We all love them. Mm, so good. So this, um, I, I tried to have only a couple maps for you. So this is kind of the, the territory that Alexander the Great's going to eventually conquer. Um, and, uh, and Babylon is where we've been the whole story. Daniel lives in Babylon and he is, has been in Babylon for, you know, multiple emperors, multiple kings, even as the Persian king comes in, he is still in Babylon. But we're told that in the third year of Belshazzar's reign, he found himself in Susa. Now, uh, Commentators will argue about whether or not that was in spirit, whether this was part of the vision, or whether he was actually in Susa. But the point is, Susa is the next place of power. So he not only finds himself like future, seeing future things in time, but God has, is showing him that there's going to be something even after Babylon. Susa was, was the place that was going to be the, the, the winter palace of the Persian kings. So Daniel, we've, one of the themes of the book has been the temporary nature of kingdoms, right? Like it's a great looking statue, but all these kingdoms are going to come and go. 
and the, earth, the heavenly kingdom is the only one that lasts forever. Well, Daniel is now seeing that kind of physically. He's moved from the seat of power in Babylon to very shortly the seat of power will be in Susa. So not only are we told that he is in Susa, but he is in a citadel in Susa. So a citadel is the place where you store the ammo, right? This is where the chariots are. This is where the weaponry is. So he is looking around going, oh my gosh, this looks like a very powerful place. He is in the seat of power of the seat of power. He is touring the nukes in, I don't even know where we keep nukes. I have no idea. I don't follow that. But he is like, like the military display is in front of him in the citadel. And he is in a place where he's like, wow, Babylon is going to be in trouble very soon. Persia is going to be the next place of power. And also you'll notice that this is east of Babylon. All right, you got to be pretty Bible nerdy to love this, but I happen to be pretty Bible nerdy. And east and down is always a imagery of the fallenness of Israel. From Even from the um, Garden of Eden, they go east of Eden. Like every step east is always like we are further away from where God desires us to be. So it's further away from the Mediterranean. It's on the other side. We are not moving closer to the promised land where Daniel's heart really is. Rather, we're moving farther away from the promised land. This had to be downright depressing for Daniel. So we're going further away from Israel. This is the vantage point. It is from, from that vantage point, from the, the, the powerful citadel in the, the Ulai Canal, which was a man-made thing, like the engineering prowess of, of Persia is on display. And this is the vantage point that Daniel sees this next vision of the ram and the goat. Although the goat has one big horn in the middle, my whole life I've just wanted them to call that a unicorn. Like, I get, I know why they can't, I know why you can't do that, but I was into unicorns when I was a kid, and I just, this, it's got one horn. What is it? It's a unicorn. Um, sorry, I forgot where I was for a second. Um, so, so, the next thing that is going to happen in world history after the Medo-Persian Empire is Alexander the Great is going to um, completely wreck shop in the, in the Middle East. Alexander's reign, and this is kind of his territory, Alexander's reign began when he was 20 years old in about 336 B.C. Most of his time in power, so he died when he was just 32 or 33, so he had a shortish reign, 12 or 13 years, and most of that time was spent in military campaigning. He was an expander. He was a conqueror. If you were going to have a, a way to describe the speed and ferocity with which uh, he conquered things, you might say he was moving so fast his feet didn't touch the ground, which is the imagery that we have here in, in Daniel's vision. He really did sweep across the region. So after, um, after Alexander's reign, because Alexander died when he was relatively young and had no heir, he actually died in the city of Babylon. His kingdom, Greece, broke into a four-way battle for power and split up the map. Now, the things that we'll be most concerned about, since we're Bible uh, folk and, and concerned primarily with Israel, are the, the Seleucid 
kingdom, which was in modern-day Iraq and Iran. So that's where the story of Daniel has taken place. And then the Ptolemy um, Empire in North Africa, moving up the Mediterranean coast. So if you're just kind of thinking about all of the Old Testament Bible stories, you have like uh, the Ptolemies in Egypt and the Seleucids in Babylon. For some context, so we can remember that this was, these were real people in real time on real earth, Cleopatra uh, led the Ptolemy Empire in the middle of the first century B.C. For most of this time, between Alexander's death and the rise of Rome, which is going to happen, you know, in the first century B.C., Judea, uh, uh, Judea flew sort of under the radar. But in 175 B.C., there was a Seleucid, so uh, the yellow guys, a Seleucid ruler named Antiochus IV that came to power. Which means we have to have, in order to understand this vision, we have to have our eye on Daniel and Babylon. Does the timeline go the other way for you guys? Daniel and Babylon. And then we have to have our eye not too many years after that in the Persian Empire and Susa being the, the powerful you know, place there. And then we have to have our eye on the Empire of Greece led by Alexander the Great um, coming in after that. And then we have to have our eye on the breaking up of that empire and these four kingdoms and, and four rulers that for generations fought over this kingdom. And then we also have to have our eye on the time of the Maccabean Revolt. Now, that's something that some of you are, are familiar with, but this comes in the time of Antiochus. So Antiochus is a Seleucid ruler who, in about 170, 175, comes to power. And we talked about him a little bit last week. He believed that he was Zeus incarnate. So to worship Zeus was to serve Antiochus, and to serve Antiochus was to worship Zeus. Now, you're not going to believe that, but the faithful Jewish people in Jerusalem, they didn't dig that. And Antiochus, his, he was a ruthless guy, but his kind of initial idea about how to rule was civic improvement. He threw a bunch of money around and built beautiful things. And this is something that conquerors have always done, right? You build new roads and build a community center and you go, hey, see, things aren't that bad. This was, his, this was his strategy. And he had an, the idea that his main thrust was to Hellenize the world, which means he wanted to spread Greek culture, Greek you know, theaters and medicine and columns and buildings. This was his idea, and the way he did it was by giving the people nice Hellenized communities. But then about 170, Antiochus suffered a huge military loss in Egypt. He went down to try to conquer some, some Ptolemy uh, you know, range, some, some land, and got thoroughly sounded, just got his tail kicked. It was a huge military loss in Egypt. And Antiochus was humiliated. Antiochus was wounded. And so in his rage, he turned north and headed to Jerusalem. And Jerusalem was no longer out of the way of conflict at that point. 
He abolished temple worship in Jerusalem, which again, the Jews in Jerusalem were not fired up about. He built a citadel. We've heard that word before. To his power. Check out how powerful I am. I'm going to store all the stuff here, right here in Jerusalem. Isn't that great? You guys are now the seat of, uh, of Seleucid power. And it wasn't great. And he desecrated the temple. And you'll remember, and we'll talk more about this at length next week, but a group of people in those couple hundred years in the meantime, a group of people had gone from Babylon, Jewish exiles, and had gone back to Jerusalem, along with some people that had never left, and had made an attempt to rebuild the temple. And while the temple never became what it was under Solomon, it was a place of worship, and it was important. It was the center of the sacrificial system in Israel. And Antiochus, and I want you to imagine not just the, the anger that you would have as a Jewish person in Jerusalem in the middle of the first century, but also the heartbreak to watch your temple dedicated to the worship of Yahweh, where once a year, the, um, you know, on, uh, on Rosh Hashanah, the Day of Atonement, um, a lamb is sacrificed for the sins of our people that we might be right with God. And in that very temple, Antiochus put up a statue to Zeus. And remember, a statue to Zeus is a statue to him. And he sacrificed a pig, an unholy animal, on the altar in the temple. This is heartbreaking. What's going on? So, with all that as context, let's review the story that Michael just read us. And it makes an awful lot of sense with that as, as context. Daniel has a vision. He's at the Ulai Canal, this place of power. And he sees a ram standing on the bank of the canal. It has two horns. One horn is bigger than the other. You'll remember that that's like the lopsided bear from uh, last chapter, but that was a couple of years ago in Daniel's uh, memory. So he sees this, this two-horned ram that represents the Medo-Persian Empire. And the ram charges west. So you kind of see where that is. Go back. You kind of see where they are, and the ram charges west. Well, what's it headed to as it goes west? Well, it's going to Babylon. It's going to take over power in Babylon, and then eventually maybe even go west so far that it hits the Mediterranean and conquers Jerusalem. The ram charges west towards Babylon. It charges north towards the Medes. It charges south towards Egypt. And then Daniel sees a goat or a unicorn with a big horn coming from, I know, I know, coming from the west. So where's it coming from? The west. Well, what's west of all that that we just talked about? Greece. And it's coming from the west, and there's, it's got this big horn. And remember that, that horns are the sign of power. You and I might, if we were writing this story, we might say it had a really big crown. And the crown became four other crowns. It's this symbol of, of, of power. And I don't know if you've ever actually, uh, my wife Tiffany was walking around in New Monterey, and um, there was a, a, a buck with like, maybe like a four-pointer sitting behind some people's bushes. And she like went to the other side of the road and took a picture. And like, you know that horn's a pretty good an analogy for power. You see an animal with huge, powerful horns, and 
It's, it's, a good, it's a good symbol for power. So this goat with this big horn coming from the west, he's running so fast that his, te- his feet don't touch the ground. <coughs> and there's a clash with the goat. Uh, I'm sorry, there, there's a great clash and the goat wins. And he tramples the ram. And the goat grows in power. Isn't this kind of a, like this just makes sense. Alexander grows in power. And unexpectedly, when he was strong, Michael just read us, when he was strong, the great horn was broken. Well, Alexander was in his early 30s and at the height of his power when he died. And instead, four horns came up. Well, these four horns that came up are very much represented by these four kingdoms. And out of these horns grows another horn, a little horn that grows great, that grew large, and grew towards the glorious land. This is almost universally accepted to be Antiochus Epiphanes. It grew great even when the hosts, it even went up against the hosts of heaven. There's even losses in heaven. And this is one of the places we get stuck where we go, oh, wait a minute, God can have a loss? Sure, sin is that. Sin is that great. The people of God have, get conquered and it breaks God's heart. You go, I thought God got whatever he wants. Well, there's this thing called free will. There's this thing called sin. And this is what is blamed for this in, in the story that, that uh, Michael just read us. As this conqueror goes through the region, do you remember what Michael said? It was because of transgression. Now, I don't think we make a one-for-one, the people are bad, and so, you know, the, the ruler came. But we do say the transgression in the land was so great that it allows for this human ruler to come in and conquer even Jerusalem. He disrupts proper worship. Then, in this vision, Daniel hears a voice, a divine one, talking to another divine one, giving voice to the question that is, at, is in Daniel's heart, how long will this go on? And the answer comes in verse 14. And the answer is as confusing as the rest of it, unless we, uh, unless we dig in hard. Verse 14 said, And he said to me, For 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. Well, what are we supposed to make of that? 2,300 mornings and evenings. Scholars have been, have been taking stabs at what that number means for centuries. Some would say it's 2,300 days. Others would say, no, it's actually half that because it's 2,300 morning sacrifices and 2,300 evening sacrifices. And, and, and I don't know which of those is true. And, and, it, and it's roughly related to the time of Antiochus's reign in Jerusalem. But let me tell you the bigger point to verse 14. And this, I know this has been a lot, but let this soak in. There will be an end to the persecution of God's people. There will be an end. And Daniel, it's going to be a long time. You'll probably be long gone by the time the end comes. 
but God has not. Even in the transgression of humanity, even in the transgression of God's people, even in all that we might say we deserve um, the brokenness of the covenant on the people's side, yet God will rescue. There will be an end. Even with the sin of mankind, even with the sin of Israel, even with the sin of those entrusted with power, even though destruction is coming, Daniel, but God's mercy will be greater still. You know, I think we need to reflect on that just as people who live in the world. There's a lot of destruction. There's a lot of sin. When we talk about things happening because of transgression, we're going to see next week how Daniel responds to this message, and his response is very much going to be to fall on his face in confession. And as we look in our world, maybe our thought should be to fall on our face in confession too. But despite the evil of the world, God's mercy is greater. And I don't know if you're here racked with your own, if there's something for here for you just personally that you would say, in my life, transgression has been so great. In my life, my idolatry, my sin, my transgression has been so great. I am very confident God has turned his back on me. And probably the, it very well might be the people in your life that feel like that didn't show up to church today. And we might have to be the ones to take this message into the world that no matter the depth and the ferocity of our transgression, God's mercy is greater. Daniel, there'll be a time when the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. You know, I don't have, I don't have a, a lot of time to, to work through this, but I have, I have pondered, well, when was that? Was it during the Maccabean revolt in the middle of the second century BC? Was that when the, it was, the temple was restored to its right state? And you go, well, that was good. I mean, Hanukkah is a wonderful thing to celebrate, and there, there were miracles there, and, and that's all good. Um, but does that bring us all the way back to the presence of God in the Holy of Holies? Isn't it not until Jesus is standing in the temple that God is back in the temple gates? So the rest of the chapter I would like to just read to you and kind of walk through with you because this is one of those chapters that we don't have to take any, any stabs. We don't have to guess at the meaning of this vision because Daniel says, I don't know what this means. And then he is told. Verse 15, would you follow along with me? When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. Man, that's important already. Nebuchadnezzar didn't know where to turn, but Daniel is told by God. Daniel knows where to turn. When Nebuchadnezzar has visions, he, goes, he starts bribing people. I'll make you great if you'll tell me what this means. But rather, Daniel knows where to go. I sought to understand it. And behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. That had to be so comfort comforting. He's been seeing rams and goats running around the region, and now there's a guy. It's wonderful. 
So we have a disembodied voice, certainly is presented as the voice of God, but then we also have one that looks like a man that is going to talk to Daniel. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Ulai. So this is this voice coming from nowhere, this disembodied voice, certainly God speaking. And it called Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. Now, here's something I'm not sure what to do with. You can meditate on this over the buffet at lunch. At the end of this chapter, Daniel doesn't understand. It's not magic. These are people. God tells Gabriel, please explain this vision to Daniel. And Daniel hears, and Daniel's a smart guy, and at the end, he's still perplexed. And as you and I especially think about prophecy, especially think about eschatology, especially think about what might come next, I think that that is very um, informative or at least comforting to me that it is possible to say i get the big idea god's in charge i get the big idea god's mercy is greater <clears throat> i get the big idea the ram is awesome but he's going down the goat is great but he's going down i get it god is the eternal one all these particulars i just don't quite get we're not only allowed i think that's what daniel would encourage us to say so Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So he came near where I stood. I'm in verse 17. And he came and I was frightened and I fell on my face because that's what you do in the presence of God. You fall on your face. No longer do you go, I'm going to argue for my position, but you fall on your face. But he said to me, understand, O son of man, the vision is for the time of the end. Now, you and I need to ask ourselves the end of what? Was Daniel concerned about the end of the world? Is that where Daniel's heart was? Is that what Daniel was thinking about? Was Daniel really homesick for Israel and really concerned about the exile and thinking about the end of the world 3,000 years later? No, rather, I, my conviction is that the end that Daniel is taught about is the end of the exile, the end of the persecution of the Jewish people at the hands of the governments of the world. It's easy to jump to the second coming, but that wouldn't have been in Daniel's view. If Daniel's the one trying to understand the vision, he certainly is not concerned with the second coming. He, we haven't had the first coming yet. Rather, he is concerned with the end of Jewish suffering. Will this never end, he has said? So, verse 18 and when he had spoken to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground, but he touched me and made me stand up. And he said, behold, I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the indignation. Again, what, the end of what? The end of this indignation, of, of the exile, of the, of the terrible destruction of Jerusalem. If God doesn't bring this indignation to an end, then who will? Daniel, there will be a divine answer for these earthly troubles. Hey guys, there will be a divine answer for these earthly troubles. The thing we are supposed to take away from apocalypse in the scriptures is the supremacy of God. Not a timeline, not a list of names, not to walk around and be really good at arguing our point, but rally, rather to understand 
that there will be a divine answer to these human troubles. For it refers to the appointed time of the end. Verse 20. As for the ram that you saw with his two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia. And at this point you say, I already knew that. And the goat is the king of Greece. I knew that too. And the great horn between his eyes is the first king. And you say, Daniel, his name's Alexander. You don't know that yet, but I do. As for the horn that was broken, in place of which four others arose, four kingdoms shall arise from it. Well, that's what happened. Four kingdoms shall arise from his nation, but not with his power. So they're going to be lesser. They're not going to attain the same power and might as Alexander did. And at the latter end of their kingdom, so as their kingdoms are wrapping up, when the transgressors have reached their limit. Are you with me in verse 23? That's another thing where I think that puzzles me a little bit. And at the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit. The, there's a few theories on this. When Israel's transgression has reached its limit and God's ready to rescue them. When the Greek empire have reached their limit of transgression. Either way, I think we could look at it and go, there comes a point, and this is just true of God because he's not a mechanical thing. He's a person that there comes a time when God's had it, when it's time for God to act at just the right time in just the right way. So there comes a time when the transgression is enough and God says, that's it. A bold-faced king one who understands riddles. Okay, I want you to see that one who understands riddles. Who has that been so far in the book of Daniel? It's been Daniel. Daniel has been the one a couple of times. Hey, I know a guy. He understands riddles. His name's Daniel. So, one who understands riddles, like Daniel, shall arise. And his power shall be great, but not by his own power. So, this bold-faced king is Antiochus Epiphanes, who comes at the end of uh, this four-kingdom season. He is wise. He understands riddles like Daniel did in Babylon. He shall arise and his power shall be great, but not by his own power. Daniel, there's something else going on here. There's a spiritual side to this. And... He shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. Man, the, he is compared to Daniel. Daniel, like you, he will understand riddles. But Daniel, where you have been salt and light in Babylon, Daniel, as you have been following Yahweh faithfully and refusing to compromise and not giving in to hate and violence, but rather loving and blessing and 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 paying for it sometimes. As you've been living like a faithful man, you have blessed. You, you have caused less confusion. There's been less destruction. There's been less violence. This other guy that is going to arise, this Antiochus Epiphanes, he is going to cause, he's like you in that he understands deep things, but he is going to use that wisdom to cause destruction and confusion. Some would point to Antiochus and say that he is a type of a future coming antichrist. And that might be true. Um, we could, there's a few different opinions on that. We might talk about some of that next week. But I'll tell you what he is for sure is the anti-Daniel. He is presented as doing all of the things that are the exact opposite of Daniel. Like Daniel, he's wise. 
Like Daniel, his power doesn't come from himself. Daniel is it's always fueled by God. It's his allegiance to God that gives him this wisdom. The same will be true of Antiochus. It will not just be human power. It will be evil spiritual power that empowers him, and that will lead to destruction and violence. Verse 25, by his cunning, oh, I'm sorry, we're not done with verse 24, and destroy the mighty men and the people who are the saints. And he will even have this influence over God's people. By his cunning, he shall make deceit prosper under his hand. And in his own mind, he shall become great. Man, it's not hard to see if this is a picture of a coming Antichrist. It's not hard to see how every generation thinks they found him. By his own power, he makes deceit prosper. You got some names in your head? Yeah. By his own power, he makes deceit prosper. Um, Or I'm sorry, by his cunning, he makes deceit prosper. And in his own mind, he shall become great. You've got some names. We know people that fit this in our world. And should the Lord tarry another thousand years, there will be people who fit this then too. And he shall even rise up against the prince of princes. He's going to even be so cocky, so full of himself, so, uh, so great in his own mind that he's going to take on God, which Antiochus clearly does in the desecration of the temple. He wants God's job. Because guys, idols always want God's job. So many things call us to worship them. To call us to be our, to offer to be our provider, our protector. And he's just one of those. Verse 26, the vision of evenings and mornings. I love this. This makes me less, less cocky about my, my, uh, um, perspective on prophecy verse 26 says this vision of evenings and mornings that has been told is true but seal up the vision for it refers for many days from now daniel this is true but don't worry about it it's a long time in the future times are times are vague it's a long time in the future daniel but the point is not vague there will be an end to suffering and God will bring it about. Verse 27 wraps us up and it says, And I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. And then I arose and went about the king's business. But I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. You know, it's very tempting to think about how this might apply to something that's future to us. And it might. I'm, uh, there's dudes with women and dudes with PhDs and end times prophecy and they disagree about this and I suggest you listen to them and we'll all figure it out. There might be a future piece to this, but I know there's a piece to it in history. I know that God worked this out in just this way. That Antiochus Epiphanes really did commit the... The, this desolation of the temple. And I know that Jesus later would say, this is going to happen again, just like it happened in Antiochus' time. And I know that even then, in 70 AD, the temple was knocked down again, this time by the Roman general Titus. And 
as I see this in the past, it's tempting to go, well, this doesn't mean anything to me in the past unless it means something for the future. But I would like to say, wait a minute. Maybe the story is important just being the story. Maybe just knowing. Isn't that even what the point of the book of Daniel has been? Six chapters of just this like courtroom drama in the nation of Babylon. So we will trust what Daniel says. So we will see God work over and over and over. So then when we hear stories about what's future to Daniel, we go, man, I think we're learning to trust God. And maybe these stories are so profound for us. First, just a few things before I let you go. First, so we will know that God is in fact a promise keeper. That God is trustworthy. This is the point of the book of Daniel. That God has been faithful, Daniel. That God was there in the middle of the exile. That even in Babylon, God is still, God is bigger than Nebuchadnezzar. God is the eternal one. And not only that, but God will bring an end to this suffering. You and I look at that and go, if that was true in Daniel, if that was true in the nation of Israel before Jesus, if it was true as Jesus comes to the temple in, in the first century, then it is true now. Frequently, when we have a baby dedication here, I'll read from Psalm 78, and it says, be sure you tell your children dark stories of old. We need to tell these stories, not for what is happening, not that we would know the details of what's going to happen in the future, but that we would be confident that it will be God who wraps up human history in just His way. Not only is God a promise keeper, but we need to understand the reality of the spiritual realm's impact on our experience. What Daniel is learning is that what he sees is evil men doing evil things and it seems so hopeless. But no, God would rather say there has been a spiritual undercurrent of this the whole time. This is spiritual battle. Paul would remind us that our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And there is a strange way that I do not fully understand with the way spiritual evil mixes with um, selfish evil men to create evil history in the world. And there is a way that God empowers faithful men and women through our choices that we could be salt and light in the world. But that evil is not alone as it is evil in the world and you, are not, you and I are not alone as we are salt and light in the world. And maybe this is one of the biggest takeaways we need from a chapter like this, that it is on us to be salt and light in the world. There are plenty of souls all around us. What a blessing Daniel was. Did you see what Daniel does in verse 27? I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for many days, and then I rose and went about the king's business. But Daniel, with his knowledge, again, doesn't head for the hills and doesn't start a revolution, but rather goes to faithfully serve his neighbors. Lastly, maybe we look at a passage like this and we go, man, 
I feel like we're in a season awaiting a kind of like Daniel, and this will be even more apparent next week, but I too look around and I go, God, how long? God, are you going to act? Lord, I feel like things are slipping. Like I never really feel like things are moving in the right direction. Rather, I feel like the culture gets further and further away from light and love all the time. I see less people honor you, not more. And maybe stories of Daniel waiting encourage us to wait in a certain way too. That we would say, man, I'm going to stay right here. I'm going to love my neighbor as myself. I'm going to love my enemy. I'm going to pray for those who persecute me if that ever comes. And I'm going to know that in a way that I can't understand fully, that in His time, in His way, God will act in human history. And between here and there, it is for me to wait like Daniel, faithfully, prayerfully, Do you remember what Daniel did when there was trouble? He got together with his Christian friends and prayed that I would use the same weapons of defense that Daniel did. And those would be service and prayer and trust and never compromising into worshiping something that is not God. So let's tell each other stories like this and let it build courage in you. And if you are weary from the evil in the world, know that Daniel was too. And the message Daniel got is helpful for us. That God is still on the throne and will act. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you um, for this story that blows my mind. God, thank you for your love Thank you for the way you have acted in human history in the past. Lord, we think especially of you sending your son that we might see an empty tomb and know for sure that there is hope in the future. And Lord, if, we're, if there are those in the room that are weary, if you know, we go, man, I just don't know. God, I'm frustrated that I don't see you acting now. God, I'm frustrated that... that that evil men are allowed to do evil things. Lord, would you help us to wait on you with the same kind of faithfulness that Daniel did? Lord, would you help us to be in all of the places you've called us, whether that's the height of you know, civil government or whether it's um, just into our own living rooms, wherever it is you've called us, Lord, help us to be salt and light there, to faithfully follow you. Lord, as we read these stories, give us courage. Give us resolve. Lord, give us the resolve to love. Give us the strength to forgive. Give us the strength to go in your name with the message, the good news of the gospel. I love you, God. In Jesus' name, amen. Stand and sing one last song. Lord, I come, I confess, bowing here, I find.
Closing prayer today from two Psalms, 46 and 139, and uh, which, by the way, you can study the Psalms with us on Wednesday night. I'm, I'm emphasizing that. Uh, so if you can make it, that'd be great. So here we go. Let's pray. Lord, in the midst of all these nations in uproar and kingdoms falling, may we be still and know that you are God. Search us, O God, know our hearts. Lead us in the way everlasting, we pray in the name of Jesus, amen.